good. There's, you're blessed with three pages tonight. Well, you know, once you start some of these narratives, you you got to finish it. So uh, anyway, at least it was finished in my notes. We'll see if we get that far. But this evening is a, an interesting uh, passages from the book of Second Kings concerning Elijah, and we're going to see more miracles. <clears throat> One has to do with an axe head that flies off the handle of an axe, um, and the other one has to do with uh, Elisha blinding an entire army. So we'll pick them up. But I was trying to think of an illustration of have I ever been doing any kind of work and something fly off uh, the handle? Um, I don't know. Uh, I was trying to think about that. I remember when I was very little and we went miniature golfing and I really wanted to swat this ball and I just took a big swing and my sister, you know, she was a little too close and she got wrapped in the shin. So I always have done things to my sister and I, I am so guilty to this day and still apologizing. Just kidding. I remember another time when I uh, was working as an electrician and I was using their, the, the company's new conduit um, threader. Well, I had done this previously in Votech and we had an old one and uh, it wasn't anything like this. And I didn't really realize what was going to happen, but I had an elbow in it. And when I turned it, it started to rotate and go like this. And there was a, there was a fluorescent lights above the top, and it just, uh, it just crashed those. Good thing I was there as an electrician. I could replace those light bulbs. But some of the older, I was just there just short, just a, uh, you know, only had been there a couple of weeks. And one of the older guys came around, and he uh, you know, just said, don't worry about it. We all do stuff like that. And then he chuckled and walked away. <laughs> but anyway, we're going to see uh, how this axe head, and no one gets hit with the axe head. The problem is, is that the axe head flies off the handle and goes into the Jordan River. Well, we'll see how Elisha, the man of God, the prophet, how he deals with this. But before we go any further, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we believe every word of it. We believe that these miracles literally happened. And Father, they happened for a reason to see the power of God. And also, I believe, to illustrate some lesson to Israel that was steeped in idolatry. But Father, we might even see something for our own day of religion, Religion that is by, uh, by works and religion that is under the world's uh, dictation, Lord, and how even the religious status of the day uh, is not fully serving you. We might find an application there. So would you teach us tonight, Lord? Would you put it all together? Would you, would you, would you make it, Father, uh, both logical, articulate, but especially powerful through the Holy Spirit? And we'll thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So if you would then turn to 2 Kings chapter 1. So we'll see if we can get 23 of these verses uh, completed um, because verse 
uh, 7 ends the axe head uh, situation. So we have to move on, and once we move on, we have to complete it. All right, so let's go ahead and read verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, Behold now, the place before you where we are living is too limited for us. So let's just kind of work our way through that. Once again, we have the group called the sons of the prophets. And we've talked about them from various times. And it really is, believe it or not, it's, uh, it's those who are being trained in the ministry, if you will, maybe even in prophecy. And MacArthur has an interesting note about it uh, as he goes way back into uh, Samuel and Chronicles. He said they were young men being trained by the prophet for the prophetic ministry, prophesying. The prophet, as God's messenger, declared the word of the Lord, sometimes accompanied by music. So in other words, these sons of the prophets uh, would communicate uh, prophecy, perhaps given by the ultimate prophet, like in this case it would be uh, Elisha. And then also maybe they passed it on by music. If, if you would turn to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 5, it doesn't exactly say the sons of the prophets here, but it's the group of prophets. And we begin to start to recognize that there is a group like that. It's very similar when the prophet is called a man of God, and the man of God did this. So 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 5 says, Afterward, you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets. And many believe this is the, the group of the sons of the prophets. You will meet a group of the prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and a liar before them, and they will be prophesying. So isn't that an interesting uh, piece of information there that there, there was not only prophesying, but sometimes prophesying to music. Well, anyway, these sons of the prophet, they come to Elisha, and they say, where we are living has become too small. Well, the phrase we are living tells us that it wasn't a monastery, but we see that this group of men uh, dwelt together. And then when he says it's too limited and too small, now all of a sudden we're realizing this number is growing. If Elisha was in charge of the ministry of the sons of the prophet, that ministry was growing, and now they have outgrown that. So this is the background for what's about to happen. Verse 2, they're going to request to go to Jordan. It says, please let us go to the Jordan and each of us take from there a beam and let us make a place there for ourselves where we may live. So he said, go. So this is interesting. Uh, they may have been at Jericho because Jericho is closer to the Jordan than some of these other places. By the way, uh, their various headquarters Back in the last note, uh, it says that their various headquarters were located in different places at Bethel, 
at Jericho, at Gilgal, and also in the country of Ephraim. And I have the, I have the scripture that is aside of those, so you could see that this this is where these groups would dwell. Well, they go to uh, they want to go to the Jordan River, and they want to get wood there. Uh, that's the idea. Now, the word beam is an interesting word, Korah, and it seems to suggest rafters. Now, they're going to they're gonna go chop down trees, and that's where they're going to get these beams from. And these beams were perhaps rafters or some sort of, you know, two by four. I actually heard uh, at the funeral this, this, this afternoon, I, I actually heard of a very funny story that had to do with Bev Morgan and a two by four. So anyway, they had this horse, and the horse was cantankerous. And the horse would would walk as close to the barbed wire as possible so that the person was getting scratched and cut. And one of the kids went in and told Bev. So she went out, and she started to ride that horse. And when every time he went for the bob, barbed wire, she hit him over the head with a two-by-four. And they said they never had a problem with that one again. So the idea is they're getting something, some kind of beam. I don't know. You know, you go to the Jordan River and you don't necessarily see the trees uh, in our day, but maybe they were at one time. And whatever they were, they were the right length and they would make beams on these rafters. Now, uh, obviously, the shelter that they lived in was very simple. Uh, in fact, some of them even lived in caves, as we saw before. But um, this is what they're going to do. They're going to go down there and get these and make shelters. And then they're going to even say, we're going to make a new place for us near there. Uh, that's, that's what it says there. And let us make a place there for ourselves where we may live. Again, we may live. It was kind of a cloister. Uh, they they, they uh, lived together. And then... You, you get the idea that either Elisha would visit them from time to time or they would visit Elisha, and that's when this teaching and training would go on. And Elisha, good guy, says, hey, go, go, that's fine, I get it. Well, verse 3, they ask Elisha to join them. It says, then one said, please be willing to go with your servants. And he answered, I shall go. So now he's going to help them. Uh, this is very interesting. So they get there to the, the Jordan, the Jordan area, wherever these trees were, and they begin to cut them down. Notice verse 4. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. So they were cutting these trees to make the beams or the rafters of this simple structure that they were going to live in. And then it happens. But as one, verse 5, but as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, Alas, my master, for it was borrowed. So he couldn't afford to, to get his own, but he could borrow one. But now he's in a real problem because the axe head, the iron axe head, is at the bottom of the Jordan River. Well, at this point, uh, I just want to uh, say that Elisha once again shows his compassion. I mean, you know, he could have said, you know, that's too bad. Maybe we can all chip in and 
get you a new axe to give back to this guy. He doesn't say that. He's going to take care of it with a miracle. And so if you look then at verse 6, it says, Then the man of God, who's that? That's Elisha. That's the prophet. It's just another synonym. Said, Where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. You know, that would be handy. You know, you get, can get yourself in a lot of pickle up there in the mountains and, and all kinds of things can go wrong. And uh, it'd be nice to have someone like that. I do remember one time my son had just bought a new fishing rod and it was the kind that break apart put it together, and he went to cast it, and there goes the top half of the uh, fishing rod, and it's, it's in the middle of tie hat. So if anybody can make fishing rods float, let me know. I'll even tell you where it is. Well, this, this, is, this is what Elisha has done. Now, in, in one sense, we don't know what the stick was for. It certainly wasn't some sort of magic trick that it made iron float. I do think there's an analogy in it, which I'll get into just a moment. But anyway, this is what he did, and the axe head came to the top. And then he just said, take it up for yourself. So he put out his hand and took it. The man didn't even have to go into the water to get it. That's, uh, that's pretty good. And, and so um, evidently, the axe head floated over to him that he would just have to reach out and get it. Well, let me make a couple applications here to this before we go on to the next one. And the first thing that we have to say is why are many of these miracles happening? Number one, to show that the prophet is a prophet of God with these miracles. Since he is the prophet of God, listen to him because he speaks the words of God. But it's also, I think, a message for Israel. God can provide for you rather than you having to turn to Baal. So if, if they wanted their crops to grow or they wanted certain things done, they would turn to these false gods. The pagans would. And here's Israel turning its back on God to try to get these things accomplished. One writes, Certainly this miracle encouraged the group of faithful followers of the Lord that their God really is alive and that he would supernaturally provide for their needs, even though many Israelites in that day had turned from the true God to Baal. So that is, that is one aspect of this. And it, and it seems as if many of these miracles are associated with getting the attention of Israel. And of course, how did they find out about it? Well, I mean, it couldn't go on social media or Twitter or anything like that. But it went by word of mouth. And you know what? Word of mouth actually travels pretty fast. Um, and, and as Israel would hear this, as it would go from city to city, they're hearing that God is doing these miracles, not Baal. But the other thing that I was thinking of, and, and this is me, this is me giving it an analogy the axe and the axe head was something that was created to be useful and very useful if you're chopping down trees. But this is just like Israel. Israel 
was chosen to be useful and to serve the Lord. Well, when this axe went into the water, it was no longer useful. It was unuseful. And Israel, turning to Baal, was no longer useful to God. They were unuseful. Well, what was the recipe? Well, it was the remedy was a stick, or should I say a branch. And in the scriptures, many times, branch refers to the coming Messiah. In Jeremiah 23, 5, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the branch who will make Israel useful again, or anyone who turns to him now. So like Elisha, who made that axe head float and then retrieved, it was then useful. Well, the same thing will happen with Israel. God will bring them to himself. So that's just always so interesting there. And I think that's the real intent of why this miracle happened. Well, let me introduce, uh, and by the way, let me show you, let me show you a picture here of an ancient axe head. By the way, uh, somebody said to me a little bit ago, we really enjoy the live streaming, but we, we can't see your PowerPoint. And I, and I said, yeah, you have to come to see that. Anyway, here's a picture of the ancient axe head. I, it, it was around the time, it was, uh, they said they, it was a Persian a Persian axe head, and this is what it looked like. Now, this is made of bronze, but it said that one was made of iron, so we see the Iron Age coming in there. Um, very simple. Um, you know, you'd have to sharpen it frequently to be able to chop down a tree. So this may be one design. Uh, this is another design here. Uh, this was an ancient Judean copper axe head. So we really, I really don't know when this was made. I, I know when it was found. It was found in 1961. Uh, but they, um, you know, I don't know, I don't know when it was made. But it's just another idea. Um, an axe is an axe, right? And uh, they have to figure out a, a way to put it on the handle. So there, there's, there's that picture of it. All right, so let's move now to the next one, the next miracle. And this is found in verses 8 through 23. And it will be the miracle against Aram's army. All right, so we remember, we remember Aram, don't we? Uh, there's been a lot of uh, interaction between Aram and Israel. And one of the reasons is, is because Aram is Syria and just north of Israel. So that's a little zoomed in there. That's that area. So... If they're going to attack their neighbors, Israel is, has a target on its back. And that's exactly what they were doing at this time. This was a time when they were raiding, making raids. So they would send a band of horses and chariots and soldiers to a city, and they would raid it. They would take all of its possessions, and perhaps there was even killing that was done in there as well. Well... We're talking about Ben-Hadad II. So we've talked about him before. 
And at this time, we believe it's Jehoram. So Jehoram is the king uh, 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 is, is the king of Israel. He's the northern king. And Ben-Hadad is north of that. So he's north of that in uh, Aram or Syria. Now let's look at verse 8 then. Let's read verse 8. It says, Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, in such and such a place shall be my camp. So this this was going on, and they were raiding, and, and they were kind of like gadflies. Uh, they, they weren't bringing a full-fledged battle. Uh, they were just secretly going in and uh, reconnoitering and doing these these little raids, and they were quite successful at it. And the king was was kind of directing it, saying, okay, well, we went to this city before. Now we'll go to another city and we'll raid that, and we'll just keep going till we get stopped. Well, as we look at verse 9, it says, The man of God, who's that? Elisha, the prophet. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. Here is Elisha once again receiving divine revelation. And again, I, I want to uh, bring our attention back to the, the part where you remember when the Shunammite woman was going to see Elisha and Gehazi says, well, you know, send her away. And he, he said, did not my, oh, I'm sorry, that's the wrong passage. Um, it, it was the passage where she comes and he, Gehazi wants to send her away. And he says, no, don't send her away. He says, the Lord hasn't made this known to me yet. And we're seeing all of these instances where the Lord has made it known to him. Um, yeah, it's in Second Kings. Uh, Let her alone, for her soul is troubled within her. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Well, now all of a sudden... Not all of a sudden, but there, the reason why he said that was because quite a few times the Lord reveals these things. And I'm going to call it the Lord is revealing current events as well as future events. So, I mean, this is going on right now. And as that Shunammite woman was going to him, if the Lord would have revealed it, that would have been a current event. Well, this is a current event. Or it, we could say it's current, but there's a little bit of future because... Elisha begins to reveal to the king of Israel what strategies the king of Aram is going to do. And then notice, if you would, he, he tells them, don't go by there. You, 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 your life is in danger if you do. Verse 10, so the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. So it was the it was Elisha who was doing this, and he was revealing what God had revealed to him. And what the king was doing was he was fortifying these cities so that when the Syrians surrounded it, they would see that they were perhaps outnumbered and they would go. Or if they did start a raid, then being outnumbered, they would lose men. 
interesting enough, it says more than once or twice. And I take that as a figure of speech, a euphemism to mean quite a few times. This has been going on for a while now. It's more than once or twice. I think it's a way of saying um, the king is getting thwarted many, many times. Verse 11, so what happens then? Well, you might imagine um, the king is upset. Every time he goes to a city now, they know about it and they're fortified. So what does he do? In verse 11, he says, now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this. Why was he so enraged? And he called his servants and said to them, will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, who's leaking this? We have a leak. This is being leaked out into the media, okay? And I want to know who it is. And, of course, everyone would say, I'm for you, king. I'm for you, king. And then finally, one of the servants in verse 12, I don't know how he found this out, but he was right. And he says it was Elisha. So he reports to the king it was Elisha. Verse 12, one of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So in other words, what you devise in secret becomes known to Elisha, and then he makes that known to the king. And this has been going on a while, and he is enraged. Well, now what? Now what is he going to do? Well, at this point, he's going to direct all of his attention on getting Elisha. Never mind raiding these cities. He is going to try to apprehend Elisha. Look at verse 13. So he said, go and see where he is that I may send and take him. Okay, apprehend him. What's he going to do? He's probably going to kill him or else he's going to keep him alive, put him in jail so that he can't tell the king of Israel anything. But, you know, apprehend him, perhaps even kill him. And then it was told to him saying, behold, he is in Dothan. That's where he, he's at. Well, there's a couple of things here that we want to talk about. So, that's what's going to happen. He's going to move towards Dothan because that's where Elisha supposedly is. Now, there's a little bit of history with Dothan. And let me first show you in a map where it is. Okay, so hopefully you can see this map. So Dothan is right here. All right, so now if you notice, this is uh, Megiddo or the plain of Ezdriel and Here's Mount Carmel where Elisha killed the prophets of Baal. Um, I, I don't have it marked, but right here is Shunem. This is where the Shunemite woman was from. So this is all within a locale, but I mean, it's not the easiest to travel through, but what did they know? I mean, that's all they had. So this is Dothan here. So uh, they're, they're now coming north. And coming in, and they're going to go all the way to Dothan to get Elisha. Well, Dothan, if you remember, was where the place where Joseph 
was put into a well. In fact, the word Dothan means two wells. And uh, of course, with Joseph being put in there, that's where the name derives itself. Um, so it became dry, and afterwards, Joseph was sold uh, to these merchants who traveled that route between Syria and Egypt. That's, that happened to Joseph. Um, uh, here, there's a reference. Uh, it says, uh, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Well, that's where they apprehended him and put him in the, this pit. This, this well. Well, as I said before, um, it's, it's located south of the uh, Megiddo. And of course, um, this, is going, this, is, this is where Armageddon is going to be. All right, we, we believe that the battle of Armageddon is going to be there. Now, that's the word that's used in the Bible. Um, so it's there. So this is south of that. And you can see it's not that far from Samaria. Samaria is going to have a part to play in this. Um, it, uh, it, it extended, it says, on a little bit of the hills and the range from Mount Carmel. So the Mount Carmel range, you know, you know how it is. Mountains can be very big mountains and then they're getting smaller and they're smaller, but there's still a range there. And, uh, we, we see that there and, it, and it's onto the plains then. And there is even a, a place there today where there is a spring and there's a mound and, it's, and there was a place marked there for Dothan. All right, well, let's, let's move on then. What happens? Well, he goes to Dothan. And he goes to Dothan because this is where they're going to apprehend Elisha. Let's look at verse 14. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. So that's the plan, but they're going to do it by surprise. And you wonder why they're going to do it by surprise. Was it because Dothan was fortified? Um, it doesn't say that in the text. It doesn't say that Elisha said they're coming to Dothan, so I'm going to tell the king to fortify it. In fact, what we're going to find out, I believe Elisha doesn't say anything to anybody this is part of the plan. Come on. Come and get me. <laughs> but the, So they're coming at night now. They're going to do it, uh, you know, in the strategy. Uh, they want to try to surprise the prophet in the morning. Well, in the morning, we see that Elisha's servant uh, rises, and he sees the Arameans circled around the entire area of Dothan. And in verse 15, the first part, it says, Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And I'm going to stop right there. The, the impression that we're getting now is this is more than just a raiding party. Uh, the king of Aram Ben-Hadad II is like, we're going to get him, and we're going to send a lot of guys there. So you get an idea that this is kind of like a small army. It's not all of them, 
but it is, it is bigger than a small raiding party to come in and hit quick and then get out. This is, they, you know, they were loaded to the hilt. And so his servant sees this, and right away he goes, rightly so, to Elisha. I mean, that's who I would go to. And it says, he said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? And there's panic in his voice, as you might imagine. Now, what about Elisha? Well, in verse 16, this is how Elisha answered. Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Wow. Okay, so we're, we're finding out, and we're going to find out, that this is something that is orchestrated by God. The army's going to come. And Elisha has this vision of those who are there to help him, but the servant can't see them. Very interesting. And, you know, it might have gone that the first thing that happens is, the, is that the servant says, what? What are you talking about? I don't, I don't see anyone. Well, we'll, we'll explain that. But this, this first phrase, do not fear, fear not, this is a reminiscent phrase that Israel has heard many, many times by Moses, fear not, stand and you will see the salvation of the Lord, or with Joshua, told not to fear, but that the Lord is going to battle for them. This phrase, fear not, means fear not because God is on our side. And by the way, already you're saying, boy, I see how that fits in with that whole analogy of Israel has fallen into idolatry, but God is the only one who can battle for them so that they don't fear. A couple of uh, phrases, one of the phrases I'd like to talk, uh, look, just read, is in Deuteronomy chapter 20, <clears throat> verses 1 through 4. And it says, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots, and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt, is with you. When you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. And he shall say, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted, do not be afraid, or panic, or tremble before them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. So when he says that to the servant, I think we have the biblical context of him knowing God is orchestrating this. Don't you worry at all. And then he says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So who's he talking about? Well, let's look. In verse 17, it says, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This was an angelic host. And the idea that we get because of the chariots of fire, remember the chariots of fire that were associated 
with Elijah being taken up. And we see here that this, this, is, the, this is a heavenly host that has come here to battle against the Syrian army. A couple of quotes here. One says, The Lord gave his servant the ability to see the normally unseed world of God's heavenly armies here waiting to do battle with the Syrians. So there were more with them than there were of them. And the idea is that they were on the mountain and now they're coming down the mountain. They're coming down in these uh, massive hosts. Another one says, in accordance with Elisha's prayer, the servant's eyes were enabled to behold the company of an innumerable angelic host that stood ready to intercede for Elisha. So at this point, and by the way, you can see the applications we're going to make to fear not, for God is there, and we certainly have the angelic host. Now maybe there aren't mountains of these angelic hosts with chariots of fire. Um, I don't know, maybe there are. We can't see them, so we don't know. But it's the idea you have God's protection, whether through angelic protection or through the the hand of God, we should not fear whatever we have. If the numbers are bigger and are more outstanding than us, we should not fear. If our difficulties are more than we think we can handle, we should not fear. Uh, We need to have spiritual eyes, but we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Well, what happens? Well, Elijah prays, that these people, these, this army, this raiding party, huge raiding party, would be struck with blindness. It says, verse 18, when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Now, at this point, we can see that blindness has been a judgment of the Lord. You know the other time that it was used? Uh, it was used in Genesis 19. Let's go to Genesis 19. And by the way, these are the only times that this, this particular word for blindness uh, is used. This is in Sodom and Gomorrah. This is when uh, we, we, we see Lot had gone there and the people of the city want to do immoral acts with these angelic angels that have come there. They, they look like men, so they would have appeared like men, but the city came out and wanted to be immoral with them, a horrible, horrible sexual sin. And this is why uh, the reference of Sodom and Gomorrah refers to sexual immorality. It is not, it is not the sin of inhospitality. And that's what it is promoted as today. Well, anyway, in verse 11, it says, 
Let's go back to verse 10. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. So we could say that one of the things we see from blindness is, and I don't mean all blindness, but I mean in these particular instances, it's a, an act of judgment. But I should remind, it's not only an act of judgment, it's also an act of deliverance. How it was a deliverance for Lot. And now, how it's a deliverance for the city of Dothan, and especially Elisha. We see it as judgment, and we see it as deliverance for them. One of the other things that I want to point out, and, and I, don't, I don't mind repeating this because I, I really see it as part of the context, um, and that is, notice the prophet. Notice how he is involved. Now, we know it was the, by the power of the Lord, and not only was it the power of the Lord, but I believe it was through these angelic beings. I think they were the ones who ended up carrying out the fact that they became blind. But who started it? Elisha. Once again, he is elevated as the prophet is the main guy in Israel. Why? Because he is the spokesman of God to give the word of God. And, and of course, it just trickles down to us. What is the most important thing now? Is the word of God that we have it. And the great thing is, it's God's revelation to you. In a way, we could say nothing is hidden from you that you need for life and godliness. It's not been hidden to you by God. Now, of course, there are some things that are so lofty that are even secret to the Lord that haven't been revealed. But the things that have been revealed to us, we see in the word of God and we have them. So again, I see in this, it just keeps promoting and elevating Elisha because he was the prophet. As we move on then, uh, in 2 Kings, let me go back there a second. Um, they, they were struck with blindness. And I do believe that that's one of the things that the angelic, host was a part of. Uh, I, I think that's one of the things that was a part of. So now what happens? All right, they're all blind. What, what should they do? Well, let's have them kill themselves or let us kill those blind men. That's not what happens. Verse 19, then Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them to Samaria. So remember, we said that Samaria is going to play in part. So here they are in Dothan. They become blind, and he leads them to Samaria. And he says, there in Samaria, you will see the man that you are looking for. Now, some have said, well, this is a, this is a lie. Well, it isn't a lie. Um, it, first of all, it's an act of mercy. He could have killed them right then and there. Could have had them killed. So this is his first act of mercy towards these men. Someone writes, 
By going to Samaria himself, Elisha did not lie, but did truly lead the Syrian army to where he ultimately would be found. You will find the man you're looking for in Samaria. I am the man, but I'm not telling you that. But when your eyes open, you will see the man in Samaria. And then in addition to this, they literally, literally did not see Elisha because they were blind. And they will only see him until his eyes are open. And who does that? Elisha. And so we go to verse 20 then. So we have this blind caravan. I don't know. How does a, a blind caravan of horses and chariots go? I think they had to tie rope or something to them, or you had to put your hand. It's kind of humiliating in a way. <laughs> so let, I'll tell you what. Let's all, let's all get blindfolds. We'll put them on ourselves tonight, and then we'll walk around the sanctuary. And uh, you have to put your hand on the shoulder of the person in front of you. Well, I don't know how they got there, but they did. And, of course, he led them there. And then verse 20, when they had come into Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. So the first person that they saw when the eyes were opened was Elisha, the one who uh, called down a judgment of blindness. And, and if uh, you're traveling that way and you're blind, you know, you're, you're afraid of falling. You know, uh, how many people use nightlights at night because you don't want to stub your toe or you don't want to trip? And, and, and when you're half asleep anyway, it's horrible. I mean... You know, you just, you're like this, you're, you're grappling. But anyway, that's our plight. Their plight was worse. And now their eyes are open and the first person they see is Elisha, the one they were seeking. But I think they are undone. And another reason they are undone, because now they are captives in Samaria. So they open their eyes, there's Elisha, there's Samaria, there's the army, and they are captives. This is not good. Uh, we would certainly in that place, if we were in that place, we would fear for our lives. And that subject comes up. That subject comes up because when King Jehoram enters the scene again, verse 21, then the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, Jehoram, when he saw them, said to Elisha, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? So some have said that he really didn't want to kill them. He was just asking. I don't know, but he says it twice. He was pretty aggressive about it. Sounded like he wanted to kill them. Now, let me just back up for just a moment here. Uh, when captives were taken captive, um, Many times they were kept and put into forced labor. We saw some of that with Solomon. Solomon had some forced labor of these individuals that uh, were still living uh, from some of these pagan nations, but they were there and they were, they were their servants. It was forced labor. Um, but we also know that at times captives were killed or individuals were killed. We see that. 
Uh, not maybe not a lot, but it certainly did happen. Uh, with in Second Samuel chapter eight verse two, let's turn there quickly. Second Samuel chapter eight. When David uh, defeated the Philistines and subdued them, he also defeated Moab. And look at verse two. He defeated Moab and measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground, and he measured two lines to put to death and one full line to keep alive. And the Moabites that were alive became servants to David, bringing tribute. Now, again, as all the reasons why there, we don't know, but what happened was he made them lay face down and a line was done, and some of them were killed, and some of them became servants and forced labor. I don't know. I guess in my own mind, I'm thinking, you know, those ones who are still ready to fight, they're not going to submit. They're going to be rebellious. Now you're not going in. Those who are obviously realize what has happened, that the God of Israel uh, is more powerful than the gods that they worship. They're submissive. They're ready to cooperate. They perhaps were the ones that went in. But the point is, some of them got killed. We also remember when Saul was asked to kill the Amalekites, and all of them, and the king as well. Well, what happens? Well, he kills all of them except the king, brings the king alive, and then they weren't supposed to take the spoils and the cattle and all that, well, that's what they bring. We, we, think, we think you need these resources, God, so even though you told us not to, we're going to do it. Well, if you remember what happened, Samuel came in and says, what's this bleeding noise that I hear? I hear this, this noise of, 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 of your animals and goats and things, and you hear them bleeding. Well, <laughs> a little inside joke there. Well, the, and, and then he finds out that King Agag is alive. And he tells Saul, he says, you know what? <clears throat> You're done. You're done. It will be taken from your hand and you will see me no more. And then, 1 Samuel 15, 33, Samuel took a sword and said, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother shall be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgad. Now, why, why that? And this isn't the night to really go into that because that did, that's not what happened. But the Lord certainly is able to bring judgment to anyone, especially those who aren't going to submit, especially those who are going to be lifelong enemies of God's people. And so at that time, they're at times were destructed to not leave anyone alive. Not, not always but there were times. So what's going to happen with these guys? That's what we want to know. Well, let's continue on. Let's look at verse 22. So he asked, should we kill him? Can we kill him? Can I kill him? Huh? Can I kill him? And Elisha says, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those you have taken captive with your sword? And with your bow. So these were captives that, and in the usual sense, when they are captives, they are spared because they are under submission. And so 
Elisha says, no, you're not going to kill them because they're, they've been taken captive. And then what he does almost goes beyond comprehension until we put it all together. He set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So not only is he sparing them the first time when he brought blindness to them, he had mercy on them, he led them to Samaria. Now he's having mercy on them a second time. He's not letting the king kill them. Then he's being very kind and merciful in preparing a meal for them. And then he lets them go back to their master. And then look at what is the result in verse 23. It says, so he prepared a great feast for them, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master, and the marauding bands of Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel. Very interesting. And, and let me just say, now, even though we read that, so the marauding bands didn't come in, but an army will come in. So, so the king of Aram is not done with Israel, so... We'll, we'll see more of that. But anyway, we have an interesting principle here. And it's a principle for New Testament Christians. What do you do when someone becomes your enemy? Well, you give it right back, right? No, not if you're a believer. Not if you're a follower of Christ. Not if you want to be Christ-like. Whoever smites you on the right cheek, turn to them the left also, the other. That's unheard of. Um, we could go to Romans chapter 12. In fact, let's do that because it's going to quote Proverbs. I want to bring out the Proverbs. Look at Romans chapter 12, verses 20 through 21. And what is being quoted here is from Proverbs. It says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, if you don't understand this, you're thinking, hey, great, he's my enemy. I'm going to put burning coals on his head. The idea of burning coals would be a symbol for the idea of his conscience being pricked. That he's so mean and he's being an enemy, but you show him the grace of God and in many, many instances, that's what turns a person. I've, I've heard it before uh, where people said, you know, there was a Christian and I knew the Christian and I was horrible. I didn't like Christians. I was horrible to him. And he was constantly nice back to me. And I just, I had to know why and talk to him and then heard the gospel and came to Christ. So that's the principle that we have here. We have this principle of a New Testament principle that Jesus will teach. Now, they don't always do it to their enemies in the Old Testament, but here was one example where he was going to uh, overcome evil with good. Don't be overcome by evil, it says, but overcome evil with good. So don't be so thwarted by it that you give in to it or you begin to retaliate. You, by the grace of God, overcome evil by doing good, and many times in reference to your enemy. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, 
you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteousness. So there's this general provision of God that happens to both the righteous, the sun and the rain. That's a good thing to both the righteous and the unrighteous. But here he's saying your enemies, you are to be Christ-like. I mean, did Christ take his own advice? Absolutely, he went to the cross. He could have summoned legions of angels. He could have summoned that angelic host that was there with Elisha. They could have all been blind and he would have been helped off the cross. But he did not because his purpose was to die on the cross, provide salvation, and show the ultimate example of love. And that is being Christ-like. And that's what we're pressing on to do this year in our theme. All right, well, just a couple other comments here real quick. Um, there is a sense, that's going back to the angelic host, there is a sense in which we are to see with the mind's eye of God's protection around the believer. If we could see uh, what is going on, the spiritual battle, uh, and how the angels are there, we would indeed not fear. Now, I don't know exactly how all of that is, and there is spiritual warfare that goes on, and we're not supposed to try to find them in the corner of a building and say, this is it, this is the corner of evil, let's cast out these demons. I mean, that just isn't in the Bible at all. But whether through his angels or through the hand of God, his providence, he will protect us. I mean, we say these verses, but it's absolutely true. And we know, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who were called according to his purpose. So no matter what happens, we shouldn't fear. I mean, God is using this. In fact, that's one of the things we're going to talk about in our theme about being Christ-like is whatever is happening to us, good, bad, or indifferent, is causing us to become more like Christ. That's God's external sanctification, and he's working in us with his Holy Spirit to produce Christ-like character. And we see other scriptures as well, like, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We should not fear. Now, we, we probably all do. We probably, you know, give in to uh, fear at times, uh, anxiety at times. Well, this is where you bring yourself back to. You bring yourself back to the sovereignty of God, the protection of God. This is what Israel was supposed to see so that they didn't turn to Baal for protection, but God who is in control. And then one other quick thing as we're really... Uh, press for time here, but it's, it's in my notes. I, I got to go over it. Um, well, actually, it's just good. The believer's spiritual warfare. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And by the way, when we do get back to Ephesians, this is exactly where we're going. We're going to take off from Ephesians 6 on the armor of God and spiritual warfare. Well, the first thing that I want us to look at is verse 12, because when we talk about spiritual warfare, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, human agents. 
but I see the human agent doing bad things, well, it's, be, it's who's behind the human a- agent. The believer's true struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces in the heavenly places, or as it says, um, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces, forces of wickedness in heavenly places. There's a spiritual warfare going on. Well, what is the believer's responsibility? Is he to go about casting out demons out of buildings and, and perform this spiritual warfare that Peter Wagner talks about and teaches? No. We see Elisha didn't do anything other than pray. Now, as the prophet, when he prayed, it was done. But Elisha just stood there and stood firm. And that is what we are to do. Go back one verse to verse 11. When it comes to spiritual warfare, this is what we're supposed to do. One, put on the full armor of God. And two, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That's how you participate in spiritual warfare. Um, The only piece that would possibly be an aggressive piece would be the sword of the spirit. But it seems to me that the sword of the spirit is more for encouraging ourselves and keeping the enemy at bay um, from our own minds and hearts. In fact, that is verse 17. He goes down to say, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So this is how we would do battle by knowing the word of God, knowing these things, these things that we're here tonight, to actually put them into practice tomorrow. That's what application is really about. It's not just good facts about the Old Testament. It's what we've learned tonight we should be using tomorrow. It also includes prayer. Uh, Verse 18, which may not be part of the armor of God, but it's the next verse right after it. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. I think that definitely does refer to spiritual warfare. You're watching other believers and seeing how they're doing and you're encouraging them. And when they go through difficult times, when you, you know of them going through difficult times, they share their prayer requests. You're battling in prayer, just like Elisha, even though we're not prophets. And then finally, the last thing in our spiritual warfare comes from James chapter 4, verse 7. It says, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But don't resist the devil first and then submit to God. Submit to God first. And this is meaning your life. Submit your life to him and your ways to him. Otherwise, some of your ways could be leaving an open door for the devil to walk in. So you submit yourself to God and then you resist the devil and he will realize at this time, on this day, he was not able to defeat you and he leaves. Probably thinking in his own mind, there will come another day. So whether him or his minions. So this is what we learned from from 2 Kings chapter 6. The first one is don't fly off the handle. Uh, The first one, (laughs) I wanted to use that so bad. Uh, uh, Keep your head, keep your head on. Um, No, the truth of it is, is that when 
uh, God makes us useful. Um, if we continue to follow him, we will remain useful. Otherwise, we will become unuseful. And then in regard to what was open to the servant to see, and no one else could see it, um, what was open to him to see, we see with our spiritualized God, uh, we see heaven, the heavenly host, and all of God's protection for us as we serve him. All right, let's just close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, uh, Kings is just getting more and more exciting and more and more meaningful. And Father, these are things that we are to take with us and to remember these things in our mind and then put them into practice with our heart and our actions. So Father, would you help us to do that with all that we learn? And thank you that you are a God who provides and a God who protects. And as we serve you, Lord, we need not fear just to continue to serve you to further your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.